We are starting off our Christmas series called Home for Christmas because there is just this thing in our hearts that has a desire for home. And home is kind of a weird concept because when I say home, some of you, though you live here, you think of somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's a funny thing. When I think of, okay, well, what was my home like? Uh, I, I think of the house that I grew up down in Naples that whenever I'm down there with my kids, I'm like, we have to drive by my old house. And they're like, we don't care. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I'm driving the car. You're going to go see it. Um, had a funny experience with someone from our church who came over to my house to drop something off. And he was like, this is weird, but this is my house. I used to live here. Um, like home is a weird thing. Even when the people have changed, there's part of you that like that experience and that attachment to wherever home was, even though the people have moved on, it like stays on those walls. And some of you are like me. Okay, for our married people in the room, who's the boring one who if it wasn't for you, like the other person would never leave home? Where's my boring people at who would never leave home? That's good. Now that I know who the boring people are, we know who the crazy people are who make us go places all the time when it's like home is paradise. Like when things are good at home, don't need to go anywhere else, right? And, and, and that's at least how our heart is. Home is a powerful concept. And in this series, we're gonna explore some things about home. And today, as we look at this very simple passage, it, it gets into this concept uh, of Jesus leaving his home and coming to earth and the way that he came to earth. And I really, it's such a simple verse, but I really want us to spend some time this morning considering what it was that Jesus left and what it was that he came to. And I want you to see the polar end extremes of the difference between the two. Very simple passage from the Gospel of Luke chapter two, starting at verse six. And we'll put this up on the screen as we start. And it says, while they were there, and the they is Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for, a, for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, this is a very simple passage that should be pretty familiar to you. It's describing very simply the circumstances in which Jesus was born. And the place that he arrives to I want to get to in a minute, but I want to start with the, the truth of what he did. And this is the first point, is that Jesus left his heavenly home. For him to be born as a baby, for him to be placed in a manger by Mary, I first want you to give some contemplation to the fact that Jesus left his heavenly home. Now, Scripture doesn't give us a ton of details regarding the physical nature, as we would say it, of heaven. I mean, it's compared to just absolute precious stones that even the gates are made out of precious stones and the floor and the seas are beautiful and God's throne inspires worship. And there is a perfection in heaven that pushes out all tears and all fears and all pain and all sickness. And that's where Jesus was. Jesus in heaven, before he came to us as a child who would be placed in a manger, he was worshipped for the glory that he rightfully held. 
And so when he was beheld by people in heaven, it would inspire worship and reaction because as the gospel of John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's describing Christ to the very beginning. And you go through a few passages later in that same chapter of gospel of John chapter one, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I just want to start with this recognition as we think about the cute and wonderful baby that was placed in a manger, that Christ was descending from his heavenly throne. It's incredible when you think of just the polar swing that he experienced of the absolute throne of heaven to one of the most lowly ways that a person can be born. Why? It is unjust. It is inappropriate to take the Lord of all creation and place him in a trough that was used for feeding animals. Why would God do it that way? Because as Jesus would teach Later, that if anyone wants to be the greatest among you, then they must become a servant to all. That from the very beginning, God was instilling to his people that the calling that he would place upon you would be to be a servant, to humble yourself and not exalt yourself. Humility is just written throughout the fabric of the nativity story. God could have set off fireworks and parades and cleared a space in a palace But that's not the message that God wanted to send to you and to I about how our life would be lived. And there is a sense of humility and there is even a sense of compassion that is just written into the way that Jesus was born. And I want to remind you of the just absolute reality of the condition that he was born into. He was born in in a stable environment. There would have been urine-soaked hay just to the side of this sweet baby Jesus. The smell of the animals weren't pleasant. And can you even think as a parent, the things that would be going through your heart and your mind as you're like, the only place I have to lay him is this trough. It would have been probably a little heart-wrenching for Mary and Joseph. God gave us this incredible assignment of this special baby that he's born and we didn't even get a place to sleep. And this is where I'm putting him? I wonder, and we don't have record of this in scripture, but I, I just, guessing how people are, I wonder if anyone ever tried to like throw it in Jesus' face when he was starting his ministry. Like, because, you know, they said, is, they said to him, and we have record of this, that isn't that Joseph and Mary's son trying to discredit him? I wonder if anyone was like, isn't that the one that was born with the sheep in the stable? Who does he think he is? And I find that to be an important part of the nativity story because if there's any part of you that discredits what God could do through you in the future because of what has happened to you in the past, look at the nativity story. God did the greatest work through someone who was born in the most humble and embarrassing circumstances. And there's a 
There's a sense of compassion and humility that is just within this story. You could say, you know, as Jesus left his heavenly home, maybe it sounds harsh to say it this way, but Jesus was homeless on earth once he started his ministry. It was said this way in scripture that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus in his life on earth, it wasn't just about accumulating an earthly home, a nice place to live, but he had a mission and a purpose. And I wonder why it is that he never settled down and bought a house. Why, why didn't he have a place that he called his own home? <coughs> I, I would venture to guess it's because, and as you read his teachings, you'll see this reaffirmed, that he understood that he did have a home, but his home was not on this earth. He understood that he had a heavenly home. And in fact, he said, when I go away from you, I'm going to go to my father's house to prepare a place for you so that when I come back and get you, you will have a place to be. He said, you have a heavenly home as well if you are in me, if you are with me. If you are in Christ, you have a heavenly home. And so that should even change the way that you worry about your earthly home. We, in regards to our home, we often worry about things like how it's decorated and what food is there. And Jesus told us, don't worry about those things. Don't I provide all those things for the birds? Don't be asking yourself what you're gonna wear, what you're going to eat. God is gonna provide for you in time because you have a heavenly father and a heavenly home who is watching over you. Jesus left his heavenly home, which was absolute perfection, and he came to this world as messed up as it was, as messed up as it is, as dirty as it was, as dirty as it is. He came into this world for a reason and for a purpose. And the second thing I want you to see in the nativity story today is that Jesus left his home in heaven to make a home in our heart. He left his home in heaven to make a home in our heart. And I listen to me. Christ will improve your life. He will improve the joy that you feel. He will improve your marriage. He will improve your relationships. But that's not why we turn to him. I want you to understand that that is an effect of recognizing the lordship of Christ in your life. But that is not the reason that we turn to him. We are not the center of the story. All right? He is the Lord of lords and he is the king of kings. Scripture is clear that he had his hand in creation and that everything that was created was created by him and through him. He, he has all power, all majesty. He is the great I am. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the last. He is the Lord of lords and king of kings. I need you to understand who he is. Because we turn to him because of who he is and when we give him his rightful place of authority in our life, all of those things that we worry about get put in line. Just as he said, seek his face and everything else will be added. And so when we recognize the lordship of Christ in our life, the joy comes into where it's supposed to be. The peace that surpasses all understanding comes into where it's supposed to be. The fruits of the spirit play the role that they're supposed to play in our life. He gives us a spiritual gift that we use for the benefit of other people. Our life begins to go the way that it should when we give Christ the authority to be Lord of our life. But we don't typically even give him the authority that a landlord has over our life let alone the Lord of Lords should have in our life. I'm going to compare it to this. If you've ever, whether you wanted to or not, become a landlord of a house and had a tenant in there, you have probably learned the difficult truth that renters don't always treat the house that you own the way that you would treat the house that you own. We unfortunately became landlords at one time in our life. And we wanted to get rid of that house as fast as we could, but we couldn't, so we had to rent it out. 
And man, they, I, I don't even know how to explain this, but they paper macheed our stairwell. Who paper machés a stairwell without asking? It doesn't even make sense. Like if you owned a house and you had renters in it and you came in and they had a sledgehammer three feet deep into your wall and you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I just decided to move some walls around in your house. We are the renters after all. You'd be like, you're a renter. You're temporary. You don't have authority to make those decisions. I'm the owner. I'm in charge, not you. And I feel like this is what it's like with Jesus in our life. We're like, Jesus, I have a room for you in my life. Stay in your room. Jesus, you can be a part of my life. Don't touch the decorations. And Jesus is supposed to be the Lord of Lords. And we've made him the Lord of 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. And we haven't allowed him to make changes. He said, you know, this needs to change in your life. This needs to change in your commitments. This needs to change in the way that you treat other people. And we, thanks for the suggestion, Jesus, but I'm going to continue to do it my way because I'm in charge here. And when I say that he came to earth to be the Lord of your heart, to be in your heart, this is not as an add-on, but this is as a restructuring where we say, when Jesus is in my heart, he is the Lord of all that I am and all that I do. And he has authority to change anything about how I live and who I date and where my money goes and where my time is used. He has authority over all of that. And so when I make this statement that Jesus left his heavenly home to make a home in our heart, it's not that he is an add-on, it is that he is now the foundation. And this, the Apostle Paul described this truth of Christ being in our life. He describes it as a mystery that was kept from all generations but is now being revealed in Christ. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, this is the secret, that Christ lives in you. He's going to make a home with you. And this is something to recognize that when you make a decision to follow Christ, he then says, my presence is going to be with you always. Why is his presence going to be with you? Because he's going to call you to do things that would be too difficult for you to do on your own. He's going to call you to make changes and restructure things that you're like, I don't know if I want to do this, but you've got to have the faith to see that on the other side, he knows best. He's the beginning and the end. He knows best. And when he tells you to make a move, it's because he already knows what will happen at the conclusion of that. Christ in you. It also says it this way in John 1. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. Jesus is describing where he will make his home. He will make it with you in your life. And it's not just a touchy-feely thing to say that Christ wants to make his home in your heart. He wants to make his home in your heart because he is ready to do some remodeling. So many of us turn to Christ as we've walked through pain and difficulty and we feel like we have just about wrecked this thing and we finally turn to Christ and he begins to improve things and then it's like, okay, Jesus, you made things to where I can stand it again in my life. Go ahead and give me the steering wheel back. Listen, he who repaired your life is trustworthy to sustain your life. And Christ wants to have a home in your heart, not just when you're going through 
the valleys, but when you're on the mountaintops as well. He wants to have a home in your life. Jesus should feel at home in your heart. If you looked at your life and you looked at the things that you did and the things that you chose and the entertainment that you enjoy and the hobbies that consume your thoughts and your time and your relationships and you, and you pictured each one of those things like decorations on the wall of your home and Jesus was in your home, would Jesus feel comfortable there? Would you think he would? I mean, he's got a pretty thick skin, so I know that he'd feel comfortable there, but he might begin to say, okay, some of these things need to change. If Jesus has a home in your heart, he's gonna have something to say about the way that you treat people. And I wanna encourage you to give him his rightful authority to make changes in our heart and make changes in our life. And this is a truth about Christ's presence in our life. This is a truth about when he makes his home in our life. Number three, that when Jesus is at home in your heart, you can't just stay home. And I'm a homebody. So I would be very happy to, you know, when I get home to shut my front door, slide the deadbolt over and it just be our crew. But I know that as a follower of Christ and a student of scripture, that you cannot, listen to me, you cannot live out a biblical Christian faith in isolation. I don't know if I can say that in any stronger terms. You cannot live out a biblical Christian faith in isolation. You have to be connected to a church. You have to love your neighbors. You have to serve people in your community. I saw this quote just recently and it stuck out to my heart that the test of Christianity isn't if you love Jesus, it's if you'd love Judas. The reality of our faith is that we're called to love difficult people that surround us. And if we barricade ourselves in isolation, it's not honoring to God. If, we, if our church services, the music is amazing and the pastor is good enough and our, and our people are amazing and we enjoy our time and we get pumped up when we're together and that is the full experience of our church service and our time and our church life together, it's just on Sunday morning, then it becomes meaningless. If it doesn't bleed into the way that we live the rest of our, our life, then our time together lacks the power that it should have because our time together should produce in you motivation and power to live differently throughout all the other days of the week. We can't be people who are only focused on our own congregational gatherings, but we have to be people who have a mission that has the heart like Jesus did as he communicated in Luke 19.10 when he said the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. We have to be passionate about other people. Uh, I want to share with you guys, I, I wasn't here last week. If you didn't watch the message, you should go back and watch it online. Pastor Daniel brought an incredible word to you guys last week, such a significant one. I encourage you to soak that in. I was so glad that he was here um, as I and some other people from our church went down to Honduras. And so why? Well, those who've been with us since 2017 have probably heard me say a a few times that it is our heart to identify a missions partnership that isn't just temporary, isn't just one project, but is long-term. And one of the things that I felt on my heart before we even launched the church is that when we find the right long-term missions partner, it's gonna have a personal connection from our church to it. It's gonna be somewhere that we can go to without spending a ridiculous amount of money because if it costs us $30,000 to bring 10 people there, I would rather just send them the money. 
And I really wanted to be somewhere that we could go and get our own sweat equity in and, and be with them and see them and pray over them and have them pray over us. And, and these were things that, that we wanted. And there's a, a person in our church named Juan. If you've ever been to first service, the really loud amener that like sits up over there, that's Juan. Um, he's from Honduras. He actually grew up just outside of La Ceiba, the city that we went to, in, in very humble circumstances. And his brother was sharing with him about some of the needs that the widows and the orphans in the community have. And God just stirred up his heart and he's like, I've got to give some to meet this need. And I was talking with Juan and I heard a little bit about what he was doing. And I was like, I would love to strengthen what you're doing. Just tell me a little bit about it. And he began to share about the churches that are already there and are already growing and are preaching the gospel there in La Ceiba. I was like, man, I would love to strengthen what those churches are doing to help care for more of the orphans and the widows and to help with the children in that community and just find a neighborhood there that we could really invest ourselves in. And as we talked about it and I got to know what's happening, it was just like, I think we need to go and see. Like we need to go and we need to see and we need to pray and we need to see what God shows us. And so four of us went from the church and it was red-eye flights. It was not pleasant. Uh, we drove through the night in the middle of Honduras. The car broke down, I think, at least four times on the way to the city that we were going three hours away, uh, which, you know, breaking down in the middle of Honduras in the black of night is, is a whole adventure. But we did make it there. Um, and I want to show you a few pictures from the trip. First of all, this is Juan here. If you see him around Gulfside, just so you know who he is, um, he's got the Gulfside Church shirt on, and we're in his brother's house. Uh, there on the table are uh, some of the supplies that Juan had purchased that his brother would go and buy. Um, Juan is a very thorough person, and so he would make his brother send receipts and send pictures of the people that he gave it away to because he wants to make sure everything is ending up where it needs to. And so we were packaging some of the bundles for, for the orphans and the widows that we would deliver these to. Um, and their house is a very humble house. We'll show you some more pictures. Go on to the next one. On our day of arrival, this is how we got around in the back of a pickup truck. It had some nice wood benches that were nailed into the back of the bed there. And we're just kind of driving open air through Honduras. Go ahead to the next one. This is the yard of Juan's brother's house. Um, he lives on a very steep hill. It was quite the exercise to make it up to the house. Um, you can see Porky there, but don't get too emotionally attached um, because he has a purpose other than a pet in, in the household. Um, but the, you can see that they have all kinds of planters. They grow a lot of their own food. They capture rainwater. Um, they, they don't have much here, um, but they, they work hard to, to put together the best life they can for themselves. Go to the next picture. Um, this is the inside of their house. And uh, Juan's brother has a really good job uh, for, for their society. Uh, living off of $300 a month is, is considered having a decent job. And um, I mean, you can see that's just tin, tin roof, uh, the electrical they, they've done themselves. But man, their generosity was incredible. Their love and their joy was so far beyond the circumstances in which they lived. And she can cook some good food. Just saying. Ate really well there. Go to the next picture. That was Estella. She was amazing. Um, this is the leadership of one of the, the main churches in La Ceiba. This is a great church. Uh, they have a passion for planting more churches, and they planted uh, a church in an area called Arminia, 
um, which is just a few miles away, but this is the reality of life in Honduras. Most people don't have cars and they can't afford to take taxis to and from church every week. And so what the pastors do is they, as much as they can, they drive a pickup truck around and pick everyone up. But in Honduras, it really necessitates smaller churches all around different parts of the city because people have to be able to walk in church and man, walk to church. And they've said that, you know, in their community, if you build it, they will come. Like if you gather people there, if you throw an event, if you start preaching and if you have worship, people will come out of their houses to join because there is a hunger for church. There is a hunger for the word of God, but most of them just can't get to a church. And so there, there is a huge uh, amount of fruit that comes from planting churches there right now. Um, and so I actually preached at that church and the church in Armenia, Juan translated for me, and the church was very gracious. They were also very passionate, um, and the, the, the worship there w- was very lively. It was, gr- it was so encouraging to be there. Go to the next picture. This is the church plant in Armenia. They are a set up and tear down church. So you know my heart was with them as they were carrying everything in and out of their structure. They've purchased this land and they're working on paying it off. You'll notice that that it's a dirt floor in there. So when it rains, because there's no walls on either side, the rain comes in and it's just an absolute mess and it's hard for them to have people in there on any of the days that it rains. And so one of the things that they've been doing is they've been saving their money and there's actually a big pile of cement block over here where we helped them um, carry stuff because we did the dumb labor. Um, they had the skills, but they, we, we, while we were with them, we started building the walls with them. You can go, go to the next picture. Um, Here's Brad Murphy from our church helping with one of the the rows of cinder blocks, putting in the mortar, which I'm going to tell you, look behind him. You see that pile of dirt. They take a shovel. They throw it at a screen. It pulls all the rock and the thick stuff out, and it creates the smaller sand that they can mix with mortar that they, they create their mortar all by hand. I mean, it's incredible the work that they're putting in to serve their, their body. And so go to the next picture. Um, this was taken at night, but you can see now there's like five levels on the left and, and two levels on the right of work that they did. And they're just going to, as they can afford to buy more block, they're going to slowly build up their walls and the back wall so that when it rains, it won't disrupt their church service anymore and, and to further build their house. And and I just, uh, I think that, you, I'll get to that in a minute. Go to the next picture. Um, This is a very common situation of how people live. This is actually, since it's a cement block house, it's one of the nicer houses. It's probably about 600 square feet. Three people live in this home. Unfortunately, it should be four. Um, During COVID, the father of this household passed away. He was actually a pastor of one of the local churches, leaving behind his wife and his two children. Uh, In Honduras, There's not much economic opportunity for women. A lot of the labor is construction. Um, And so what women can do is they can wash clothes down in the river and they don't get paid much. And it creates a very difficult standard of living. And this was one of those things that as we saw the situation, and I mean, you look and you see kids who are teenagers who are the same age as your children. And you just think, what would it be like if these were my kids and my wife? And what would I want the church to do? And it, and it just, it hurt our heart, but that, that's the condition that they're living in. For them, that's actually a pretty decent home, um, but they, they need assistance through their local church. Go to the next picture. Um, this is one of the families that uh, we, with Juan and his brother, brought supplies to, to some families. But as the local churches saw what we did, 
They're like, man, we need to do more of that. And it actually spurred them to start bringing more relief to orphans and widows from seeing what we did. And this is some of the pictures of what they did. Go to the next picture. This is us at one of the local schools. This is um, an interesting situation. The building behind us was built by USAID and given to the Honduran government. Uh, the Honduran government doesn't have funds to pay teachers. And so the only way that education happens at this school is if local people from the neighborhood choose to take it upon themselves to be teachers unpaid to take care of these kids. One of those people is Nancy that's right there in the center. Um, she doesn't really have resources for it, uh, but she has a classroom that can be used. And so she teaches the kindergarten um, class there. Kids start dropping out from school in Honduras as early as kindergarten, as soon as they start to have any struggle at all. And with a lack of resources, you can understand how struggle is easy to come by. Very few children complete sixth grade. And as we were there with them, you know, we just asked, what, what are the things that you struggle with? She said, I would love to have some Bible-based curriculum to help teach kids to read. I wish that there was some food opportunities for my kids because a lot of them come hungry and we just, we don't have any resources of food to give to them. Um, and then one of the other big needs that she said is our school has a septic tank, but there's no bathroom. They built the school, but they built no bathrooms for the school. And so our children or any of the teachers here, if they have to go, they have to, you know, just go outside and there's a, basically a porta potty there. And you know, as we're hearing this, we're just, we're saying, okay, we, we can do something. You, you notice the soccer ball there. We brought about 20 soccer balls to give away to the kids just as a, you know, hey, just, just that we, we love you. And you should have seen it. It looked like Christmas morning on their faces. Something as simple as a $5 soccer ball. Um, go on to the next picture. We, we left um, some, some money with the school in order to get a couple resources because their graduation happened this last week. And so she used some of the money to get some of those things to just celebrate the kids who have completed kindergarten um, and to just help them understand the special achievement of, of finishing this year of school. And so that's that part of what she did. Uh, but coming out of Honduras, the question became, okay, what should we do? What should we as a church do? And for us, I believe a regular part of our calling is local. And, and we, we've done this for the last few years. Uh, Diplomat Elementary School, the guidance counselor there, she helps identify some financial needs and families that need food because there's kids at Diplomat Elementary who eat their breakfast and lunch at school. And when school goes on break, they go home to empty cupboards. And we don't think that should happen during Christmas break in our own city. And so we are positioned to provide food for about 15 families. And there's probably more getting added to the list right now. And my guess is we're probably gonna spend somewhere around $3,000 on food here locally. But I think that we should do this year something to bless kids here and bless kids there. And if you go to the next, um, next one, this is what I, I would like our church to consider stepping up to do. I think that we should build the bathroom for the school and purchase Christian education supplies for the classroom. And that would cost $1,500 to provide one real bathroom for the entire school um, and to provide reading materials that are Bible-based uh, for Spanish learners would be $1,500. To provide lunch for the children for the entire next school year at this school, we could do that generously with $1,500. We could help 
finished buying the bricks for the walls of the Armenia church as they build it and as they need new bricks, we can help pay for that. And all the bricks that they need left to complete the walls would be $3,000 or less. Our local needs to Diplomat Elementary are 3,000, which would give us a Christmas goal of $9,000. And it's a big goal for a church our size. But since the beginning, we've said our mission has to extend beyond our household and beyond our community. And I believe that this is gonna be a long-term partnership with us. I wanna take another trip this summer. We're we're praying about whether we should do an English camp or what we should do, but we wanna get more of you guys over there. I wanna get more of our teenagers over there. I wanna share share with our children and with our adults the importance and the passion of missions and seeing the gospel in lots of different contexts and understand exactly the way the world is, not just in America. And I wanna empower the church there to be a difference, to, to make a difference. I don't really want anyone in La Ceiba to know the name of Gulfside Church, but I want them to know the name of their local churches and empower what they're doing. And I think that we can have an incredibly beautiful partnership that starts from here and moves forward. But it's gonna be up to us to decide. I would challenge you guys as a family to have the conversation. It's not that one family needs to do all of this, but each one of us needs to do our part and have the conversation and make a decision that part of our Christmas is that we're gonna give to the kingdom. We're gonna make a significant difference in the lives of others by our generosity. Because we understand if Christ has made his home in our heart, it can't just be about our home. It has to be about the kingdom he's building. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the generosity that you've poured into our lives and for the blessing that you've given us. Help us to extend that blessing to all different places of the world. We pray for those who will need assistance here locally and we pray that provision would move through your church. We pray for those in La Ceiba and places where you've called us to make a difference and where you've called us to encourage the church that is established there. Would your blessing flow through us and would you show us the part that we need to do in it. We thank you for the example of humility that you gave us in the way that you were born and the way that you lived and the way that you taught. Would we approach this with the humility that honors you as we have this opportunity to see the gospel move forward in Jesus' name.